Thank you for tuning into this special presentation of the novel The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek, read for you in its entirety on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. The Dead Kids Club is what I like to call an everyman thriller, ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. It follows a divorced couple after the death of their son and asks the question, what would you do if the killer of your child got away with it? How far would you go to get the justice you deserve? the revenge you need, and how will you know when you're done? The complete book will be serialized over the next several months, between my usual short story episodes. I caution you that unlike most of the content on this podcast, The Dead Kids Club is a gritty thriller depicting scenes of graphic violence and mild sexual content, so if you're sensitive to that type of material, you've been warned. Please visit bedtimestories.studio to subscribe to my mailing list so you don't miss any chapters of this unabridged audio presentation and news about my upcoming thriller, The Tenth Ride. And now, Part 12 of The Dead Kids Club by Rich Hosek. 11. I sit at the police station on a hard wooden bench, exchanging glances with a bored desk sergeant. Detective Court asked to meet me after work. He didn't say why he wanted to meet. I assumed it had something to do with the message I left after my run-in with Mikey Manzanetti's guys several nights before. The desk sergeant's phone rings. He answers, listens, then hangs up. You can go back, he tells me. I push myself up off the bench, then wait for him to buzz me past the reinforced door leading to the detective's area. Court is poking away at his computer keyboard when I approach, using the eraser end of a pencil to laboriously type out something that he immediately loses interest in when he catches sight of me. He waves me to the chair next to his desk that I sat in the last time. Thanks for coming in, he starts. Whatever I can do to help, I answer. Well, I'm afraid I have some more questions about the Vitalik case. I react shocked and confused, because I am. What about it? Well, we might have a suspect, and I just want to ask you a few follow-up questions and in light of your recent encounters with members of the Vitali family. I'm not sure I understand. Well... It's obvious that Tony Vitale has taken an interest in you since his son's death, but I'm wondering if there was anything you noticed before that maybe didn't seem relevant at the time, but now in retrospect might be important. Like what? Like people following you. Strangers in strange places, the same faces in unrelated locations. Before Anthony's death? Why would the Vitales have been following me then? Why? Well, he continues, we have reason to believe that whoever killed him wanted to implicate you. I'm confused. Well, for example, there was a witness who says they saw a suspicious couple casing Anthony Vitale's house some weeks before the murder. Suspicious? Same car driving up and down the block. No make and model, but you do have a dark sedan? I nod, dumbfounded. What's going on? How did this turn around on us? See, that's the kind of thing that defense attorneys seize on during a trial. Why didn't you follow up on this lead or that lead? He remarks, I just need to cross all my T's. I'm sorry, are my ex-wife and I your new suspects? No, 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 not at all. You guys have an alibi. The clerk at that resort verified that you guys came in before the time of death and didn't leave again until the next morning. Except that we both did leave and come back that night, I thought. I wonder if he's playing a game with me. If he has some red light camera footage of me or Rebecca racing to or from Vitaly's house. The woman who found the body also claims that she saw a couple walking away from Anthony Vitale's house between the time of the murder and her return. But since you and your ex-wife were nowhere near there, 
just another one of those loose ends a lawyer could try to weave reasonable doubt around. Of course, I say agreeably. Personally, I think for whatever reason Mikey Manzanetti has a hard on for you, he's going all out to scare up any evidence he can, getting witnesses to come up with little things here and there to throw suspicion your way. Who is the suspect? Well, I can't really talk about it, ongoing investigation and all. Oh, is he lying? One more thing that came up. I understand that you are part of a support group. Shades of Eddie Horn's violation of that corner of my life raised my blood pressure. That's kind of a private thing, I insist. Yes, of course, I don't want you to breach any kind of confidentiality, although legally, it's not technically a privileged communication. What does our group have to do with anything? I understand that some of the other parents have had recent turns of fortune similar to your own. I remain silent. I know you probably wouldn't answer this question even if you could, but I'm afraid I have to ask. Is there anyone in the group who you think might be capable of going vigilante? You know, like in those old Charles Bronson movies. I shake my head. Death Wish. Excuse me? The movie. You ever see it? Sure, a long time ago. What does that have to do with... Nothing. He shuffles some papers. Okay, sorry, really. I hate that I have to ask these questions, but if you'll bear with me for a moment longer. What else can he want to know? Do you know Brian Brown? You must know that I do. Yes, of course. He and his wife Barbara run the group. Do you think he might be capable of doing something like that? Like Charles Bronson? I ask with genuine incredulity. Well, yes. Not a chance, I reply, almost laughing at the thought. Was that his suspect? Brian? Well, if you think of anything else, you have my number. And of course, I'm still very interested if Mr. Manzanetti continues to harass you in any way. Thank you. I get up to leave. One more thing. Who does this guy think he is? Columbo? Congratulations. I understand you and your ex are getting remarried. I cock my head, wondering who might have told him that. She seemed very excited about it. Best of luck. I obscure my alarm with a smile. Thanks. I turn around and head for the door, check my watch, then quicken my pace, as if I just remembered an appointment I was late for. Twelve. I bring Rebecca into the bathroom and turn on the shower. Why didn't you tell me you spoke to Detective Court? Don't yell at me, Rebecca retorts, her usual defense for avoiding a conversation she doesn't want to happen. I take a breath and calm down. How could you not tell me about that? You didn't tell me you were going to see him. I thought it was about the Manzanetti stuff. It wasn't a big deal. What if we contradicted each other about something? About what? Anything. I didn't tell him anything new. Did he ask you about people in the group? I told him that was private. What about the night at the resort? I told him that we fucked like there was no tomorrow. What do you think I told him? That we slipped out and killed that monster? Do you honestly think I'm that stupid? No, I say out loud. Then stop treating me that way. I'm sorry, I'm just worried about... What? This whole Berman thing. Maybe we shouldn't... I knew it. You are such a pussy. I'm trying to protect us. There's too much attention from the police, from Manzanetti, Vitaly's goons, from Horn, the group. We're tempting fate. Fuck you. If you don't want to do it, I'll do it myself. Rebecca, we had an agreement. You said you would do this with me. Look, we can do it, but just not now. There's too much we don't know. The way Manzanetti's been digging stuff up on me, I wouldn't be surprised if he has us bugged. 
and I'm not buying that sheepish by-the-book act Detective Court is trying to pass off. He tried to play us off each other. He's got a scent of something, and he's not going to let go. She folds her arms and leans against the vanity, pouting. I know this is important to you, but that's all the more reason we need to be careful. I told you when we started. It doesn't work if we sacrifice ourselves in the name of revenge. It doesn't make sense if we get caught and they get the justice we were denied. What does it matter? She asks, looking away from me, dejected. Right now, it's all that matters. I see tears welling in her eyes. I thought you understood. I thought you felt the same way I did. I do, I reassure her. You know I miss him just as much as you do. She shakes her head. Not the missing. What? Didn't you feel... I mean... She gathers her thoughts. At first there was pain. That ache. That spot inside of me that was the rest of his life that was suddenly nothing. It was just empty. No, worse than that, it was dead. She shakes her head. Maybe you don't know. How could you? What are you talking about? I'm the one. I'm the one who carried Nick. Who had him grow inside me. Felt the first time he kicked. I did that. You contributed your part, but it was inside me that his life began. It was at my breasts that he was nourished and grew. There's nothing I can say to that. I feel like a giant selfish penis. He left something behind inside me, and now it's dead. That I'm not. And it's so heavy. The tears rolled down her cheeks. I do my best to just listen, to let her know I'm at least hearing her, even if I can't ever know anything about how she feels. Killing Vitaly helped, and Cooper, and Dempsey, and Lorenzo, and doing it with you was wonderful. It truly felt like it did when we first met, when I couldn't wait to see you next, when being with you was electric. I take a breath. I don't know that I want that if it means we have to keep on killing to keep us going. We just need to finish. And how do we know when we're finished? She puts a hand to her belly, then looks at me hard, fighting back tears. When this feeling, this black hole of pain inside me is gone, that's when we're finished. All I know is if we stop now, I won't be able to take it. I won't be able to go on. I don't know what to say. A moment ago, I was dead set on convincing Rebecca that we needed to stop. We need to find another way to move on. Now she's telling me that if I don't, she has no reason to live. She reaches out and takes my hand, places it against her belly. I still need you, she tells me, stepping closer. I still want you. She presses her forehead against mine. I close my eyes. I know there's a question coming next, and I know how I'm going to answer it. Do you still want me? She kisses me lightly. Yes, I tell her. I do. 13. Lunch with Eddie is a regular event now. Sometimes we talk about his work. Sometimes I befuddle him with all the technology I deal with in my work. Today, I have a favor. There's something I hope you can help me with. Shoot, Eddie offers. You're gonna think I'm a hypocrite. I think everyone's a hypocrite. What makes you so special? I laugh. Well, I need your help to look into something that happened to some family members of someone in the group. Eddie nods. Yep, you're a special type of hypocrite. I shake my head. Never mind. No, no, I'm just jerking your chain, Eddie assures me. Happy to help. What can I do? 
Well, I'm looking for information about a family who died in a car accident on the tollway 20 years or so ago. Ah, he says, smiling. Before the age of your precious internet. Yes, I admit, it's been a while since I've done the library thing, and I was hoping you could give me some tips, point me in the right direction. He pulls out a pen. It'd be quicker if you just give me the details and let me work my magic. I hesitate. Don't worry, just between us, I promise. I dropped that serial killer novel I was toying with. Turns out my agent is getting some interest for a hardcover printing in my Vitaly family book. I feed him the details that Brian had shared with me. He stops writing and looks up at me. You say this was 20 years ago? Or so. Young family? Two kids? Both boys under five? Yes. Car explosion on the tollway. Well, there was an explosion. This is weird, he tells me. I know all about this. You do? I ask, puzzled. Old Harold must be Harry the Shark Finn. Sounds like a mob nickname. Yeah, not a very original one at that. I start putting it together. Old Harold was in the mob? He was one of Vitaly's lieutenants, a brutal enforcer. Allegedly, one of Vitaly's rivals, Bruno Batone, put out a hit on him. Apparently, some young hitman, looking to make a name for himself, planted a bomb in Finn's car. Holy shit. Yeah, only he screwed up the wiring. Finn drove around with it under his car for days, but it never went off. And then he loaned the car to his son's family, I deduce. Civilians, Eddie added. They had the misfortune to hit a pothole or something in just the right way that whatever connection was loose on the bomb set it off. No wonder he blames himself. Brian had it all wrong. He wasn't blaming himself out of misguided guilt. He was blaming himself because the bomb was meant for him and he handed his son the keys. The incident started a war between the families. Finn supposedly killed the guy responsible, then dropped out of sight. Apparently Batone dropped the contract. Everyone thought he moved to Ireland or something. This is amazing. I look up at Horn. Eddie, you can't. Don't worry, he assures me. I told you this was between us. I won't tell another soul. I owe you that much, at least. Thanks. But lunch is on you. 14. We drive up to the McAllister estate. I'd seen photos on the internet, but seeing it in person adds a whole new dimension. Extravagant is an understatement. An usher greets us at the gate, checks our names against the guest list, then waves us through. The pair of Vitaly's goons that are tracking us stays on the main road. A valet takes our car. It's out of place among the Audis, Benzes, and Teslas lining the driveway. We walk up to the door and are escorted through the house to the backyard, where tents and tables are set up, a band plays on a stage in front of a dance floor, and myriad waiters and waitresses mingle amongst the cast of a J. Crew catalog with various hors d'oeuvres and glasses of champagne. I'm relieved it's not a black tie affair. I feel enough out of place. Wow, she really has a crush on you for letting us in here with that paltry donation we made, Rebecca observes. Knock it off, I tell her. She's just a nice person. Uh-huh, she chides back. So this is how the 1% lives. How come we don't have a house like this? Sorry, I forgot to invent a key piece of technology that every device that connects to the internet uses. She shakes her head. Should have married the lawyer. Well, it's not too late. She squeezes my arm and gives me a kiss on the cheek. Dawn McAllister spots us, sets down her half-empty champagne glass on a passing tray and approaches. So glad you could make it, she says with a smile. Dawn, this is my fiancé Rebecca, I say bypassing the ex-wife part. Rebecca smiles back. 
Thank you for the invitation. I have to ask, why are you looking for a shitty management job in IT if you have a billionaire for a dad? Well, he's a bit old school. Most of this will go to charities like this one when he dies, and the small percentage that he'll allow me to enjoy is in a trust. It will only be released to me once I make my first million dollars. Wow, that's harsh, Rebecca says. Don laughs. Yes, I guess so. I mean, it's not like I grew up a pauper, but I can appreciate my father wanting me to earn the right to be rich. I have enough friends who are spoiled rich kids to realize he has a point. So I'm getting whatever experience I can, wherever I can get it, while I kick around some startup ideas. Well, Rebecca says confidently, I know a great engineer who could use some ground floor stock options in a hot startup. Rebecca, I admonish. Don laughs it off. Don't worry, I've got my eye on him. Something catches her attention. Wait right here, I'll be right back. Rebecca leans in to whisper in my ear. Told you she had a crush on you. You know she meant that professionally. Dawn returns with a familiar face hidden behind a pair of wraparound sunglasses. She introduces us to her father, Michael McAllister. Well, Dawn promised me there would be someone here who knew more about CPUs than IPOs. He puts an arm around my shoulder and starts to walk me toward a buffet table. First question, though, iPhone or Android? Or are you one of the ten people who bought into Windows Phone? Dawn steers Rebecca toward a different crowd of people, likely a selection of idle rich who she can pass out her realtor's business card to. My conversation with McAllister is mostly one-sided. True to his reputation, he is opinionated and loquacious. I enjoy the interaction, knowing I'll get dozens of jealous looks from the guys at work when I tell them about it. Eventually, a familiar face drifts by, and McAllister snags him by the arm. Justin! he exclaims. Come meet my new friend. Justin Berman puts on a charming smile and offers a firm handshake along with friendly eye contact as his future father-in-law introduces us. Justin here is another one of those sheeple who swallow up the latest and greatest gadgets they dream up in Cupertino, whether he needs it or not. Justin grins. What can I say? I'm not the tech genius my fiancé is. Still don't get what she sees in you. Well, Dawn's mother isn't a computer whiz. You still loved her. True, true. You do have a point there. I need to go inside and light a fire under the caterer. We're running out of scallops, Justin says. Nice to meet you, he adds, shaking my hand once again, then heads toward the house. Good kid, McAllister offers. Troubled youth, but he really seems to have tried to make amends. Let's hope he's not quite that angelic, I think to myself. Excuse me, but where would I find the restrooms, I ask, seeing an opportunity to get some one-on-one time with Berman. In the house. Make it right down the hall, second or third door on the left. I can never remember. I'm sure I'll find it. And then you're coming back. You're the one person here who is making this afternoon bearable for me. I'll be back, I promise. Then head on into the house. 15. Once inside, I follow the stream of waiters carrying in empty trays, hoping they'll lead me to the caterer Justin is discussing the scallop shortage with. I end up in an enormous kitchen that is filled with activity but minus any signs of Berman. Instead, I try to retrace my steps and locate the bathroom McAllister gave me directions to. Somehow, I get turned around, and whichever way right and left were when I entered the house are completely obscured by the architectural complexity of the mansion. I start opening doors, hoping to find the bathroom behind one. Instead, I find a closet, a library, and another closet. I approach the fourth door, but pause before opening it. There are voices inside. Voices and moans? I smile at the notion of a couple of the guests, or even the staff, getting it on in McAllister's mansion, and make a note to run the idea past Rebecca. Not quite the level of excitement of killing someone, but it might be enough to spark her wild side. 
Against my better judgment, I find myself slowly twisting the doorknob and pushing the door gently open. It's a study, and across the room, on a desk, there's a couple engaging in exactly what I speculated they were doing. I slowly pull back until I recognize something. The shirt the man is wearing is the same one that Justin Berman was wearing. He must have run into Dawn on his way to talk to the caterer. I'm suddenly embarrassed that I'm spying on my hostess and her fiancé. The copulation comes to a sudden and dramatic end, and the woman's face, which was previously blocked by Justin's body, comes into view. It's not Dawn. It's a blonde, wearing a waitress uniform. He backs away from her and pulls his pants back up. She buttons up her shirt and straightens her skirt. Well, she asks, you're not holding out on me, are you? Justin smiles and fishes a small vial out of his pocket and tosses it to her. She unscrews the top and uses the small spoon attached to it to lift a tiny mound of white powder to her nostril, and quickly snorts it up. Hey, save some for me, he says, then snatches the vial from her and snorts two scoops himself. Some powder ends up on his upper lip. You have a mess, she tells him. The waitress pulls his face toward her and licks it off. You don't want that pretty girlfriend of yours to know you're misbehaving. Justin snickers. She's so clueless. She buys anything, I tell her. Is she as good a fuck as me? Not even close. But the bitch is rich and gonna get richer. Stick around after the party. We'll do round two. Sex or coke? Both, baby. I quickly close the door before he decides it's time to return to the party and catch me spying on him. I dash down the hall, turning in the direction of the sound of the band. My heart is pounding. My breathing is heavy. I burst into the fresh air, find the nearest tray of champagne and down a glass. Careful, you'll get the hiccups if you drink it that fast. I turn to see Rebecca. She sees me flushed, and her face shifts to a look of concern. Are you all right? She asks. I take a deep breath, smile, and tell her the good news. Berman is an asshole. She smiles as well, takes my arm in hers, and leads me back to the party as I give her the blow-by-blow of Berman's drug-fueled infidelity. 16. It's a rough day at work. We're installing a new system for managing our warehouse, and it's not going well, to say the least. I work till after 10, overseeing the process, making sure all the boxes on our deployment checklist are ticked off and all the related systems and services are tested. Roger calls me several times, reminding me that this is our primary business system. If it looks like there are any problems, we have to roll back to the old system until we can get it right. I assure him that despite some anticipated issues, everything is going as planned. It's fairly boring for me. I'm not doing any of the actual work, just coordinating the handoff of tasks. So I take advantage of the downtime to do some more research into Justin Berman, and manage to discover an apartment he keeps near the airport. He shares his current address with Don McAllister, but I discover via some shady services that look up semi-public information on anyone for a fee that it appears that he has a bachelor pad that Don may not know about. From the behavior I witnessed at the charity event, I could well imagine what kind of quality time he spends there. In between running some perfunctory tests on the system cutover, I do some digital surveillance of the apartment via Google Maps and start to formulate a plan to do some surreptitious on-site investigating as well. This seems like the perfect place to take him down, as it will shatter the illusion he has crafted about himself to be found in such a neighborhood. The deployment concludes. All the assigned tasks and tests are complete. I phone Roger to give him the good news and send out the all-clear email to let the rest of the company know we can resume distributing sporting goods. I give Rebecca a call to let her know that I'm on my way home. It goes to voicemail. 
She's likely over at Amy's again. The two of them have been spending a lot of time together planning for Amy's baby. Out in the parking lot, I notice something is missing. My shadow. The ever-present goons who have been trailing me night and day are gone. Hopefully Vitaly has reconsidered his reconsideration, or just gave up as Rebecca predicted. I get in my car, start it up, shift into reverse, and look up to find Mikey Manzanetti's dark eyes filling my rearview mirror. I bet you're wondering where your babysitters are, he says. I sit still, silent. Don't worry, they just got the night off. I wasn't worried about them, more about myself. Then about Rebecca, and the fact that she didn't answer her phone. And I haven't done anything to the missus either. Oh, sorry, forgot, you're not married. Yet. What do you want? Well, it has occurred to me that I've been sweating a wrong bereaved parent. I mean, follow me here. You are the guy who killed Antony, and your ex must have at least known about it. We had nothing to do about it. Yeah, that's what you keep saying. And I don't have anything to prove to my boss what I know to be true. He leans forward. What I know, he repeats slowly and purposefully, to be true. He leans back. But I will. Because now I know that there's more than one nut I can crack. And for what I've seen, that lady of yours is a little unstable. And I don't think she's as clever as you are. If you touch her, what? Mikey asks. You'll stick an ice pick in my head? I stay quiet. I'm a very patient man, and I'm not going anywhere. And with that, he opens the car door and slides out. I realize that the car is still in reverse, and my foot is pressed against the brake pedal all the way to the floor. I slip it back in the park and take some deep breaths as I watch Mikey walk toward a dark SUV that slows to pick him up and speeds off. 17. Rebecca is asleep when I get home. I breathe a sigh of relief and get ready for bed myself as quietly as possible. I take a peek out our living room window. A black SUV is parked across the street. They're back. I notice some baby catalogs she must have collected for Amy on the nightstand with some of the page corners folded over. I'm glad there's something positive going on in her life. The idea of Mikey confronting Rebecca the same way he's done to me haunts my thoughts. I see the scene play out in my mind. Rebecca is at a baby's R.S. with Amy, picking out furniture. They split up, and Mikey approaches her. We haven't met, he begins, but your ex-husband and I go back a ways. Rebecca sizes him up and tries to ignore him. He persists. You see, he's done a good job of convincing people, including my boss, that he didn't kill my friend. I mean, I concede he had a pretty good reason. Anthony was careless and irresponsible in the accident that took your son. Rebecca laughs. Are you for real? The accident that took my son? That stupid bastard murdered him, and he got everything that was coming to him. You see, this is why I have the notion that your ex-husband and maybe even you have a motive. Rebecca shrugs. I don't know what you're talking about. She turns her back on him and starts browsing through crib bedding. Mikey, undaunted, continues. I think you do know what I'm talking about, and I think you know that I know and are trying to figure out how to convince me that what I know I know isn't what I think it is. Rebecca turns around, a smirk on her face. Well, don't think too hard. You'll strain that tiny little brain of yours. Mikey's expression shifts from one of professional detachment to personal insult. Are you patronizing me? Rebecca shrugs. I don't think I can be patronizing if you don't even know what patronizing means. Mikey grabs her arm. I think you owe me an apology. Fuck you, she offers instead. I don't think you know who you're dealing with, Missy. 
You obviously don't know who you're dealing with, moron. Mikey squints into her eyes, wondering if he needs to push any harder. Rebecca leans in, speaking in a hushed tone. You think you won't wake up with an ice pick in your thick skull? You think we can't find out where you live? Who you fuck? You think you're any smarter than your dead friend? Mikey smiles, grabs her by the arm. Get your meat hooks off me, you asshole, she demands. Mikey lets go, still smiling. He reaches into his coat and pulls out a microcassette recorder. Gotcha, he says. You got shit. I ain't got enough to collect the bounty on your head. Oh, really? She reaches into her purse and pulls out a gun. Mikey's grin disappears. Rebecca lifts the gun and aims at his head. She pulls the trigger and Mikey's head snaps back as a red dot appears on his forehead. He falls over like a felled tree, crashing into a crib behind him. Rebecca tucks the gun back into her purse. A crowd gathers. Amy returns, sees the body lying on the ground. Who's that? She asks casually. Some dumb fuck, Rebecca answers. Did you find anything you like? No, she answers. Well, we can try the place downtown. They had cute stuff on their website. Okay. They start for the door, winding their way through the furniture displays and racks of baby clothing. Siren blares from outside. A SWAT team bursts into the store. Get down, a gruff-armored officer screams at Rebecca and Amy. He's over there, Rebecca informs them. I said on the ground, face down, hands behind your head. Listen, the guy you want is back there. She reaches into her purse. All the SWAT team rifles swing toward her. She pulls her gun out. I already took care of him for you. Drop the gun, the officer screams. Rebecca rolls her eyes and points with the gun toward the area of the store where she shot Mikey. He's right back. Before she could finish her sentence, shots ring out. Her body twists and her blouse blooms red flowers as each bullet enters her body. She drops the gun, then looks down at the blood oozing out of her wounds. Come on, guys, look what you did. She falls to her knees, then onto her face. Rebecca lies face down on the bed. I crawl next to her and stare at the ceiling, wondering how all of this is not going to end very badly. Thank you for listening to the Dead Kids Club on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs Fiction Podcast. If you are enjoying this free presentation, I hope you'll take a moment to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or Audible and sign up for my email list at bedtimestories.studio. Make sure you rate and review on the apps that allow it and share this podcast with anyone you know who enjoys audiobooks. You can also show your support by purchasing this or any of my other books in paperback or ebook editions on Amazon or the complete audiobooks on Audible. And lastly, if you're a fan of paranormal mysteries, I hope you'll also check out the award-winning Rainy Day Investigation book series, co-written with Arnold Rundick and Lloyd Auerbach, at rainyday.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. Thanks again, and all the very best.